This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 137. There, there. The debut novel from Tommy Orange, There, There, follows a collection of Native American characters in the build-up to a large powwow in Oakland, California. The book garnered a lot of great reviews when it was published last year, and today we'll discuss its complex and multifaceted approach to the issues of identity. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need, where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hello. Hey. How you doing? Well, pretty good. We are uh, well into the new year now, and... uh, People in the entertainment industry have returned to work, which means people are returning <laughs> phone calls, which is nice. Uh, I don't At know least for the next couple nice. of weeks before everybody leaves for Sundance. Uh, right. And my birthday is this week. I turned 48 on uh, on Wednesday of this week. Happy, happy. Oh, happy birthday. I'm feeling... Um, old? Feeling old. Yeah. I don't know. Tell me if you guys feel the same way. At what point... Was it when you started to look at your birthdays and deciding whether or not you were in middle age or you were just declining towards death? Like, I'm not going to live to 96. I eat way too many complex carbohydrates. So, like, I, I've i got, like, maybe 40 years left. Mm. I'm past middle age. Mm. Well, here's – okay. I I couldn't wait to turn 30. I was so happy. I, I don't, love, Right now, I don't care about good. turning 40. Uh, the one that really messed me up, which is super weird, was 26. 26? That's when it gets yes. real. Yeah. And I think it was also because uh, maybe this is a child actor thing. I was like, everything I do now is just something I do. You know, but if you did, <laughs> if you accomplish something before you're 26, it's like, he published a novel before the age of 26. He, you know, but, but after 26, they're just like, Ugh, you're just, you're just doing your thing. You're just living your life. Right, so profoundly. So everything I'm doing from here on out is meaningless. It's just like stuff that will be in the second half of my obituary. Yeah, uh, you could you could like rebirth into a new career. Why would I want to do that? I I've got a successful podcast. Yeah, I'm just saying you could. If you want. I think at this point you just enjoy your life and enjoy the world while it burns around us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, so. 48 does not feel like a, a significant birthday in the sense that I feel like I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. I, like you, Ryder, I had mine at 25. Because at 25. Oh, I remember this. Yes, you talked about this. You yeah, years ago. At the yeah, at the, I had a literal, I had a literal nervous breakdown at the Magic Castle. Like, I, like a crying nervous breakdown at the Magic Castle where. Which is ridiculous. Because had you I know. written your first novel at that point? Like, no, no. I was, oh. like, when I was 25, what was I doing? When I was 25, I was working at a temp service, getting people temp jobs for a living, which ended up being the genesis of my first novel as it happens. Okay. Um, didn't you, because of that breakdown, decide to write fake liar cheat? Yes. Isn't that the sort of, okay. Yeah. It was a good yeah. breakdown. It was a good breakdown, but like, you never want to cry in public on your birthday around your, my, at the time, my girlfriend and my friend. In front of magicians. And just like, and, and magicians are like, well, we're going to make those tears disappear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we should maybe explain. The Magic Castle is a, a club, a magician's club in Los Angeles, of, of which I used to be a proud member. Not because I'm a magician, but because it was so fun to go to. And you have to dress up, and they have all these like weird little um, like trap doors and a piano that plays by itself and takes right. your place. And uh, it's like this weird building up in the Hollywood Hills. It's so quiet. I mean, it kind of looks like a castle. Um, but then they do magic shows every night of the week and professional magicians from all over the world come. So it's like a, a, every every week is a, or every couple of weeks is a new set of magicians. So if you're a member and you're willing to dress up and go, um, you can keep going to see like incredible magic. Uh, and they have like a close up room where they do sleight of hand with only like 10 people in the audience. And then there's a main stage show. 
I used to I used to go like two or three times a year, and then I realized that two or three times a year was not worth the membership fee. <laughs> well, and it's one of those weird places in LA that um, when you explain it to people, it sounds like it's an absurd thing. But then there's also there's, like there's a bunch of places like that. Like um, where's the place where you can joust and stuff? Where uh, didn't you and your brother what? used to go there? Um, medieval times. <laughs> medieval That's not times. an LA thing. Yeah. You don't get to. That's not an LA thing, yeah. And like, you oh, don't everywhere? joust. Everywhere, I want to yeah. be very clear. You don't personally no, joust gosh. anybody. I just went to Medieval <laughs> Times for a bachelorette party. What, what kind of bachelorette awesome. party How was to Medieval Times? Uh, I had never been, which is amazing because it's very close to where I grew up in the middle of New Jersey, which should surprise no one. Um, so I had to like, I went home to visit my parents and then I took a train into New York to meet up with all the bachelorettes to take a party bus back into the jurors. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was really so ridiculous. Wait a minute, you, it was a fun bachelorette you, party. You went to New York in order to take yes. a party bus back to where you already were. This is the existential <laughs> situation of women at bachelorette parties. They're pretty pointless, but everyone just right. does the thing. So at at medieval times, let me get a picture. Yeah, of this. yeah. What was the what was the blow up penis situation? I was like? going to say, were there penis hats, penis straws? Great question. Um, I think <laughs> I'm trying to remember honestly. Well, bachelorette parties fall on one line or the other, right? Like either the either the wife to be is like no penises, none of that stupid crap, or it's like. All, all penises, are off, everybody. Right. Yeah, all penises, everything. All it takes is one person at the bachelorette party to tip it, though. Like, and once they start distributing right. stuff, that's it. I think there was yeah, then... a necklace and probably some straws, but honestly, it was all <laughs> obliterated by the actual jousting and stuff. It was like first. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was obliterated by alcohol. No, <laughs> no. Although we did get like goblets full of the worst wine you've ever had in your entire life. Uh, it was insane. <laughs> they like assign you a person to cheer for. Um, it's very much my epiphany was what medieval times is really for is horse girls. The amount of, well, of which you are one. So exactly. what a wonderful, what a wonderful happenstance because yeah, they take they take like it's there's the fighting and the jousting and stuff but then there's also just whole sections of the show which are like incredible horse work yeah. where they take these horses and they yeah they dance and they jump and they bow and they do all this <laughs> cool stuff i remember i was incredibly bored when i went i think we went for my brother's 30th i surprised yeah him which is back to medieval times super weird <laughs> <laughs> I, look, ten-year-old Ryder and eleven-year-old Shiloh loved medieval. Yeah, yeah. thirty-year-old Shiloh and thirty-five-year-old. Right. That's Ryder why I did it for him when creepy. he turned thirty. <laughs> it was creepy. fun. Oh, we had so much Todd, fun. don't you have any oh sense God. of joy? Don't you go to like yeah. my life is baseball my games life is filled with joy. Like for my forty-eighth birthday, I'll probably do something joyful. Like uh, I don't know. I'm Google totally friends who've died. <laughs> I'm totally, I'm going to get a party bus and I'm going to pick you up and we're going to go to medieval times. I, I think we could probably get, uh, you know, 5,000 words in the rumpus for that, <laughs> that <laughs> personal essay. Todd Goldberg and Ryder Strong go to medieval times. Okay. Why don't we Hunter S. Thompson it up? We'll All get right. some peyote. <laughs> we'll get some... We'll get some acid and some uh, liquid human adrenaline. What, what? Right. And we'll go to medieval times and we'll write a. Um, we'll, we'll, well, we'll, one of we'll, us will be Hunter S. Thompson and the other one will be David Foster Wallace and we'll see who writes the better essay. I, it's important to know. I, I, I forgot. We are part of the Lit Hub Nation now. If we want, we can have a continuing column series on LitHub where you and I go to places of our youth hopped up on high-class medicinals. Or we could just do it as an episode of Literary Disco. We just bring the recording gear on the road. I got them Well, actually, when I was there, I was struck by the quality of the writing of the plot. And I think it would be fun for us to review A Medieval Times show like it's playwriting for its story quality yeah it is all right so next time you're out west julia the three of us will go to medieval times oh my gosh and we will record our time there. this is a promise we'll probably have to do it covertly because i suspect medieval times will not allow us to to record live you would not we would have to do it afterwards it is so loud the sound quality is the worst thing about the whole thing 
I think this is a thing where we could get some fans to go along with us, where we bring 15 to 20 literary disco fans to go to Medieval Times, and then we do a live recording afterwards where we review the show. This is definitely going to wor- be worth a $500 plane yes. ticket for me. <laughs> <laughs> They still do the thing where they go medieval times, times, times. I don't know. <laughs> Didn't no. stand out. Oh my god! With everything else that was going on. Oh, every time they say the the, the name, they, at least they used to. It was like they had to shout it out and like let it echo. It was always like, such a dramatic <laughs> like. <laughs> All right. All right. Should uh, we talk literature? We yeah. should the literature. Right. Well, and in fact, this book that we're going to talk about there, there by Tommy Orange, actually made me nostalgic for my childhood um, in, in Oakland in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Northern California. So, uh, there, there by Tommy Orange was published in 2018. Orange is a member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes and grew up in Oakland, where most of the novel takes place. The story jumps between characters and time periods, with uh, each chapter focused on one person and written in a different mode, sometimes first person, sometimes third person, sometimes even second person. Um, Eventually, the common thread becomes a large powwow in Oakland, which is a contemporary intertribal gathering focused on traditional dance and music. So some of the characters in the novel are there to dance in the competition for prize money. Some are organizing and hosting the event itself. Some are there to watch. And some of the characters are there to rob the powwow at gunpoint. What'd you guys think of this book? Um, I was completely and totally blown away by this book. Um, Loved it. I I think Tommy Orange is um, a genius. (laughs) I also think that it's obvious that he wrote this book when he was in graduate yeah. school. <laughs> and I, and I can't wait to get into and it. I have, and oh I can God, tell you, just, you, you just said everything I wanted to say. Exactly. I, and I can tell you why as, as we go along with it. Yeah, but, we'll get into it. Um, you know, the, the thing that is really cool, too, um, like this is a book that Obama had on his summer reading list. Mm. Um, or I'm sorry, his best of list. And as I was – and I had read this a couple months ago and I just reread it. It was cool to read something and imagine – Obama, like you know, chilling, reading the same book at the same time. Like it's a, like whoa, Obama read this and really liked it. I'm like Obama. You are such a political. I know you really are. (laughs) Like when you met Bill Clinton, like whatever six years ago. I just remember you like going apeshit over it, and and Um, just like I love that you sit back while you're reading a book and fantasize about Obama (laughs) reading this. Let me be clear. I provided provided security for Bill Clinton. Also, I'm basically Uh, in the Secret Service. mm. Uh, Julia, what are your initial thoughts? Or I. Oh, I was so happy I got to come into this book. Like I was scrambling towards this episode and I didn't, I made myself not read literally one thing about it. I read the title and then I opened to page one. Um, and it was it, the first 10 pages or whatever that essay is. And it's really a standalone essay. And I've since read like other reviews have argued that that essay should be in the best American essays, even though it's part of the yeah. novel. Um, it lays out this the history of violence against Native Americans or American Indians. Um, there's a million different ways that they're named throughout this novel. But anyway, um, it lays out like the legacy of violence. And we all, you know, kind of know. It's one of those things where you're like, yeah, we, I know. Like, I know it was bad. But very specific incidents and ties them together in these like incredibly lyric and disturbing ways. Um, so I love that, and I like the the structure, the pace of the novel. I also really liked. I can't wait for us to obliquely talk about the ending. Um, but I wish that not. I wish I am excited about this book because you you're brought into a world and a culture which is as as I think the novel calls it, urban Indians. So Indians who don't live on the res or aren't getting back to the land as it names a couple times. Um, and I love that, but it also becomes a novel about, and this is really obvious very soon on about, about shooting and killing and um, violence. And I started to think like, this is going to be this new subgenre. you know, like there's going to be a lot of novels about shootings and what that means. And seeing those two worlds come together, I was really excited to read a book 
that would overlap those two incredibly important subjects. And, you know, the, the, the idea of it being around what is eventually going to be a shooting um, and the idea that this is sort of going to be the modern novel, um, you can't discount the idea that, that mass shootings, school shootings, things like that are these sort of epic things that tie people together. There's Dave Cullen's new book, Park, Parkland, is coming out. Um, by the time you folks who listen to this will be out, I think, the next month. Um, you know, and that's his second long book about a mass shooting. But I was thinking about this book in relationship to um, to Empire Falls by Richard Russo, which is oh, yeah. a, another book about a town, um, th- uh, an old uh, industrial town, which Oakland is as well. Um, but Empire Falls is in uh, the the East Coast, and so it's an all-white person town. Um, but everyone's surrounded by a uh, dying mill town with old old values, and the the onset of modernity essentially to the city of Empire Falls is a mass shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that the onset of modernity in there there is not a mass shooting. That's just a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens in Oakland all the time. It happens everywhere all the time. And so it's not shocking. And us talking about what this book is going to end up with with the mass shooting is not shocking. Um, you you know what's going to happen in about, you know, 100 pages. Into 100? The book. Oh, uh, well, they, I, I wrote <laughs> 10 pages into the book. Yeah. You know that well, I, yeah, um, in the a essay, couple of the characters it, are planning to rob a, yeah. the powwow. So you, you the whole book is just a sort of dread getting up to the, the it's like paid and introducing New yeah, character. it's like page in the five. Essay they talk about it. Yeah, and it, yeah. very yeah. early on, they're like, "We three D printed this gun," and I'm like, "Oh right. god!" <laughs> but in the in the um, in the essay at the at the beginning on page ten of the book, stray bullets and consequences are landing on our unsuspecting bodies even now. It says yeah. so. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's it's there at at the very beginning. Um, and, you know, there's something also about this book that, I mean, there's a lot that's great, but it is also about the nature of Native American literature. There's a point in the story where one of the characters is talking about writing a short story about Native Americans, and he wants to name the main character Victor, and right. the other character is like, come on now. Right. <laughs> because Victor is the na- main character, Sherman Alexie's um, character Smoke in Smoke Signals. Yeah. So it's like... You can't name it'd be like naming someone Ishmael, you know, like <laughs> right. you just can't do it. Um, yeah. And so and that's sort of an inside joke, but it's also a, it's about what we know about Native American literature. It's like, oh, well, yeah, I've read a lot of Sherman Lexie and a lot of Louise Erdrich. And so that joke lands. But if you don't know those things, then that joke doesn't mean anything to you. Yeah. Well, he also references Erdrich in the in, in the book at one point. Right. He talks about her stories. Um, yeah, there was this great passage that I think gets at a lot of, um, uh, the things you were just talking about this, the question of how to, how to be a a Native American writer, right? I mean, the book is so much about Native American identity and what Mm -hmm. that means, but, but when it comes to art, I found this one passage really telling, which was, um, there's a character named Edwin who is into traditional or into a contemporary take on traditional Native American music. And um, so there's this passage on page 77 where he's describing why he likes the music or, or, or the complexities around the music. It's the most modern or postmodern form of indigenous music I've heard that's both traditional and new sounding. The problem with indigenous art in general is that it's stuck in the past. The catch or the double bind about the whole thing is this. If it isn't pulling from tradition, how is it indigenous? And if it is stuck in tradition in the past, how can it be relevant to other indigenous people living now? How can it be modern? So to get close to, but keep enough distance from, tradition in order to be recognizably native and modern sounding is a small kind of miracle these three First Nations producers made happen on a particularly accessible self-titled album, which they, in the spirit of the age of the mixtape, gave away for free online. <laughs> and I thought that that was... A, a, a really interesting way for Tommy Orange to insert what must must be a uh, you know, must have been something that he was confronting with in writing this book itself, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like if you're going to write a book that that it tackles Native American identity, and I mean this this goes for every Native American writer, I guess. Like, are you going to address it head on? And if you are, are you going to make it a book about you know traditional uh, stories the way that I think. Um, um, I'm blanking on her name right now. Uh, Leslie Marmon Silco 
uh, inserts a lot of actual traditional stories into her novels and her writing. Right. Um, or are you going to avoid all that and just focus on contemporary Indian life and what it means to be a, an urban Indian in Oakland? Um, and I feel like Tommy Orange really manages to kind of spread uh, a, such a wide net by focusing on... Well, I mean, there's so many characters in this book. I guess there's really yeah, like 12 main 12, ones. 12 characters, something like yeah, that. But all, it's, all with their own POVs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and... Every single one of them, without a doubt, wrestles with the question of how native they are and mm-hmm. what that means. And um, I thought that was incredibly refreshing to have every character be self-conscious and self-aware of that issue. Um, and, you know, for somebody like me, you know, grew up white in uh, a very privileged situation and a very white privileged society, like being able to have an access point where it's like, yeah, what, what, what does that mean to sort of, to, to, to not feel native enough or to feel too native at times and to be embarrassed by your, you know, I mean, man, there's so many angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the, then there's the characters that feel too white or not white enough. And uh, it's just like, you know, if there's ever the, the, the word is intersectionality, right? And yeah. I feel like this book is, the the most the, the best example I've ever seen of fictional intersectionality. It's like mm. this layering effect. Each chapter is like a sort of complete uh, different, you know, a person with their own history, their own life, and their own uh, concept of nativeness and native identity. And so, like every chapter, you have to like hit this reset button on what that means or what you think that means. And each character, you have to hit that reset button, and you're constantly. So by the end of the book, you're just like. You're, you're exhausted and it's taken a lot of work, but you do also feel like there is something that you've walked away with that, that means something, you know, that, that the, the layering and then the actual, the literal intersection of these characters all meeting at this powwow. Yeah. It's beautiful, you know, and and it's meaningful. One of my, one of my only complaints is, um, the coincidence factor, you know, Uh, like how, how certain people are related and we won't spoil that, um. But there's a big question about who you are essentially runs through the entire book, this question of identity. And it turns out people have been, you know, adopted or left or, or whatever. And then at this powwow, a bunch of people that, you know, should not be able to find each other find each other, essentially. Um, and, and so coincidence plays a little bit of a role here. But it's but that's the magic dust, right? Like, that's the magic dust that makes fiction work sometimes. Yeah, that didn't bother me. I also think that that's kind of the point of a powwow, right? I mean, like... The idea is is that, you know, because a lot of some characters roll their eyes about the powwow in this book. Other characters embrace it wholeheartedly. Um, so I, and this question of like, how do we relate? How does each character relate to this event mm-hmm. um, is 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 driving so much of the book. But then the reality is, if you're an Indian in Oakland, you would probably go to this event, right? An event mm-hmm. like this. So the idea that it, that it's the thing that brings these characters who do some of them end up being related to each other. I mean, that is, that's why, that's why the powwow exists is to sort of force people to come together and, you know, and confront these questions. Um, I don't know. That didn't, that coincidence didn't bother me. Other coincidences bothered me. Um, and we can talk about that, uh, maybe later, but certainly that one didn't, that was fine. Cause I, I feel like that's the point of right. the gathering. So the interesting thing about the powwows, I did a bunch of research into them for my last book. Um, because in fact, nationally, the powwow system is a huge font of organized crime and criminal behavior amongst tribes. Hmm. Um, there's a there's a huge amount, yeah. There's a huge amount of movement of drugs, guns, and money um, through the powwow system. And I wrote about it in in Gangster Nation a little bit. So I wasn't surprised that they were going to rob a powwow because nefarious stuff goes on at powwows all the time. Um, but the thing I think is interesting is that the powwow in this book is happening at the Oakland Coliseum. So when you when you look sort of nationally at these powwows, you have them at these, you know, on reservation land. So even out here in Palm Springs, where I live, um, there's an annual powwow not far from my house um, that the Kuiya, um, uh Band of the Cabazon Indians hold. And it's on reservation land, and it's a huge, you know, tens of thousands of people show up to it. Um but here in this urban landscape, they're doing it at the Oakland Coliseum, which is this antiquated big bowl coliseum that you don't even like. Th- there's no architectural value to it. 
like you see a lot of coliseums now and they're you know there's bricks and it's pretty the oakland coliseum is this ugly bowl that um has been in the center of oakland forever but it's also sort of the center of oakland life because it's where the sports teams have played so we talk a lot about the oakland days and the raiders um uh, in relation to the coliseum throughout this book and the raiders have left and come back and but the a's have been there for the last you know 48 years basically um but the the fact that they're having a powwow at this giant sports arena that has absolutely no tie to their culture at all is this other sort of interesting line that's spread into this novel about these people have to go to this other place where the city of Oakland gets its identity. So there's a point in the novel where a character talks about how great it was to live in Oakland in 1972 to 1975 because the A's were good for those years. And how, man, you, you took pride in the fact that they were winning championships and they had this player and that player and and you became the city of Oakland. And that's a really big thing in Northern California itself is people really take their identity from the athletic teams up there. So there's people who like the Giants and there's people who like the 49ers and those are your Silicon Valley types. And then there's the people who like the A's and they like the Raiders and those are people who have any sort of brown in their skin (laughs) or are any kind of working class. Um, there's a big divide culturally East Bay uh, to San Francisco, and that's why San Francisco is the city and Oakland is the town. Um, you know, there's, so all these things that if you grew up or know anything about Northern California play a role in this book as well. And then, of course, the great quote from Gertrude Stein, which creates the title there, there, um, which ends up being sort of an arguing point at the beginning of the book, too, which I was surprised by. Um, so there's a lot of just amazing depth in a book that really is is not very long. It's it's under 300 pages, um, and there's but it's just permeated with profound sadness too. I mean, it's not a, this is not a happy book, but it's a book that you can read and even by the end, which is um, a hopeless situation, actually feel some sort of rising sense of. Something else at the end, other than hopelessness, which hmm. is strange. What 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 do you think, Julia? I feel like, I mean, overall, I really like this book. I wouldn't even say I love this book, but I do feel critical of it in a certain way that I I want to like kind of get into here, which is I feel like the subject matter was misweighted and it got so like botched crime novelly with this robbery that some of the mm-hmm. subjects that were given way less time felt so much more like thematically important and meaningful to me. So like it's a, a side story um, uh, about the suicide rate of Native Americans that is touched right. on in one story in one chapter. And I was just like, uh, this would I expected that to come back at a, another point the way that a lot of the other violence comes back. Um, domestic violence I thought was going to come back. I really thought was going to come back in another way that I can't say. <laughs> um, and I, it's funny, writer, that you say intersectionality because where I feel like I feel two ways. I feel like the female characters were some of the richest, and I was really. Yep excited Mm -hmm. and impressed by their stories however i feel like they eventually just sort of like moved away for this these like boys doing their crime and i was disappointed you know what i mean like i felt like those other things needed to have more of the story and more of the themes i felt like the plot Mm -hmm. carried away the novel, the last like 30 pages. I think the ending literally could have been another 50 I pages. Agree. I completely agree. I completely agree. I think, I, I think maybe he was surprised by that. Himself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think maybe he decided where this novel was going when he was riffing on what probably started with mostly male characters in Oakland, which because he grew up there and he's a male, I'm assuming that was the closest to him. But in reality, the best characters and the best writing, yeah. I thought, were the farther he way yeah. he got from Oakland. Whenever the novel left Oakland, when it goes to the Alcatraz section, mm-hmm. oh, I love that, that whole yeah. family. There's a whole, yeah, that whole family, and then all the female characters. I was so much more drawn to them than like, uh, you know, there's like three guys 
that are, that are all of their names start with the letter C yeah. and they're kind of indistinguishable and like he could have cut you know half of them yeah. and Naravo would have been fine and then of course so in a weird way I think you know this is this is going back to what you were saying Todd about knowing that this was an MFA mm-hmm. book it feels that's the MFA quality like, that is that's the absolute right. MFA quality I mean I see this in my own students work all the time but I can also see it in the sense that okay this is someone in their sixth quarter and you're like hey man you gotta have something yeah happen. yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> so right. you've been this, riffing on all these different characters going in all these different directions right. bring it all together and get it some yeah i know so there's the there's something's gotta happen um and like i can imagine his reading list even it's like all right you're gonna read winesburg ohio you're gonna read stillwater saints you're gonna read visit from the goon squad <laughs> yeah exactly. visit from the goon like, squad is sit- all over this too I, I, you know, you're going to read the things they carried. Like, the, like I can set his, his reading list. And what's the Juno Diaz um, book that was so. You're going to read Drown. You're going to read Oscar Wilde. Yeah, Oscar Wilde. And, yeah. and, and let me just say, in fact, you know, this could have just been a collection of short stories and it would have been remarkable. And I think maybe 20 years ago, they would have called this a novel and stories or something mm. like that. But no right. one wants to read those, you know, so they just called it a novel. Um but I think Drown is, in fact, the closest comparison to this work of any other book. Drown being uh, Juno Diaz's first collection of short stories, which are all essentially interconnected stories about these this family of uh, Dominicans in New York. Um, but like I, I can I can see the the MFA professors, some of whom I know from looking at the acknowledgments, <laughs> saying, "Hey, man, like." You got to tie this shit together and, you know, all this cool stuff that you did back there. Let's let's bring in some more stuff with this 3D gun making and all this. Like, I I can totally see it. And it's not a problem because it's not it's not an MFA novel in the way that a book written at the University of Iowa is where it ends up being a lot of people staring at their belly. Uh, Yeah, this is a novel that, that looks out. Yeah. And and this is why this is why it's on all the best of lists this year. This is why it gets beyond the sort of, you know, rush quality of the shooting at the end and is something larger, is that it is still asking huge fundamental questions about society and about mm-hmm. where Native Americans belong in the world today and how they can disappear into an urban landscape like Oakland. I grew up in Northern California. I had absolutely no sense of a Native American population in that area whatsoever, other than the missions and that Unipro Sarah enslaved all of them. Um, but I didn't know anything about, you know, urban Indians essentially living 15 minutes away from me my entire life. Here in Palm Springs, it is part of the fabric of the city. Um, it is you, you, you every street is named for a Native American. Um, the, the, the bands, the tribes um, are a big part of, of everyday life here. I'm aware of it. In fact, here at, I'm, I'm recording today from my office at UC Riverside and uh, down the hall, we actually have the Na- a Native American college um, rent space from us here. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I see all these folks every day. So for there, there, uh, my, my feeling is that this book transcends all of the sort of normal staring at my belly button MFA mm-hmm. fiction because it is about something larger. And Tommy Orange has something more important to say than how sad people are (laughs) you know there's something bigger yeah i think it's more just like the other i was comparing it to a visit from the goon squad in my mind because of the way the characters relate and kind of feed into the Mm -hmm. next chapter which i absolutely love in both of those books and other books as well um but i think it is like the slight difference that i felt is I still felt like Tommy Orange was like super there in a way that mm-hmm. in like a visit from the Goon Squad, I'm like Jennifer Egan is no one because she could be anyone. Um, <laughs> but like Tommy Orange's voice is permeating, and I think that's maybe good. I don't know, it, but it is different in that way where you can feel like he has something to say, you know, and that's going to come out through a teddy bear. Or mm-hmm. um, an old woman, or like a a kid. Spider in the legs. Spider yeah. legs. You know, like you, know yeah. you know what the other thing is. I should I should mention the other MFA thing. No one other than someone in an MFA program is like, hey, you know what, dude? 
Let's do a chapter in second person. (laughs) (laughs) And present tense. Like, present tense is always a big red flag. Yeah. When a whole book is in present tense, it's like, okay. Yeah, like... But you know that messiness, that, like, jumping, that plurality of voices and modes, like, that can be very masterful, right? Oh, yeah. That's indicative of, like, either somebody who is in complete control mm-hmm. or it's indicative of like a new writer really flexing yeah. his or her muscles and like right. pushing themselves. And this felt like the latter, right? It yeah. felt like somebody who was trying these things out. And I, I think like what Tommy orange needs to hear if he ever listens to us or any people <laughs> like us is that he succeeded on those areas oh, where yeah. he was pushing. Oh, exactly. Really well. right. like, Absolutely. I think, I think the places where he felt most comfortable were actually the weakest parts of the book. Um, and you know, I, I, I want to go back to something which is, I kept thinking about and I because I finished the book this morning and I like I went back and forth and I still don't know. I think maybe part of the problem is the 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 prologue and the interlude, which yeah. I love. But the inclusion of those things, what that does is I think it's sort of it, it's 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 a sign of uh, of a sort of fictional insecurity to me. It's a sign of like this isn't just a novel. I'm going to. I'm going to give you my my intellectual bona fides and my thematic structuring right up front. And it's brilliant and they're great essays. But by having that, then you do have this voice of a sort of authorial intelligence and that makes all the characters subservient to that intelligence. So you're aware that these are all fictional creations to sort of serve the essays or the, the thematic structure. And I think that was a misstep. I would have loved to have read those essays separately or if there was another way to blend them in a little bit more. Like when it started, I thought we were entering more like a sellout Paul Be- Betty. Did you yeah. read mm-hmm. The Sellout by Paul Beatty? Beatty? Betty? I don't know. It's a great book, but I found that book a little exhausting. But that is like a voice of complete control in terms of the the writing. Like that that's somebody who's clearly been writing for years. And his the intellectual point or the intellectual sort of uh, narr- uh, essayistic voice is woven into the narrator very consciously. And it's like jumping in and out of reality in this very controlled way. Whereas here, with the essays being like this sort of upfront, I just don't, I think it might've been a misstep. And I think that's what, what, it, I don't, have you, have I you don't, seen the movie Vice? No. Yet? No. Or, okay, I read the book the big though. short though. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, uh, okay. I feel, I feel like we're getting to this place where our books and our novels, I mean, our books, our novels and our, our movies are like trying to be uh, essays on top of good stories. And I just, I'm starting to wish, I, I just want to go back to like good storytelling. I don't, I, I don't know, man. I, yeah. I, I disagree because I think, I think, I think he's doing exactly what you said before. Which is he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna swing for the fucking yeah, fences. Yeah, I agree. And, and okay, but would you feel different? Do you do you think you'd feel any differently about Jackie or Orville or Edwin or any without, of these characters without, without having without read the, that or the feel, interlude? Yeah, yeah uh, I don't I think would. I feel any different. I, I think would. emotionally, I would care about them just as much. Well, and I would I, be on board for their journey without the essays. I think what the essay so there's an essay at the top, and then there's a part called interlude, which is right smack dab in the middle of the book. Um, and both of them provide context, but it's not a context that's out of voice. It's not Tommy Orange that's talking. I don't know who it is, um, but it's not Tommy Orange. And so in that way, I feel like it's just another character who is in the book who who has a point of view. Um, I I don't think it's Orange himself. I think it's, you know, that's the omniscient narrator that, that oversees all this. Because the book does then also get mystical, you know, um, when people have been shot and you start seeing them die and things like that. So, no, I, I think I think it's a, a swing for the fences and and that it succeeds because it's audacious. It's a it's a really audacious choice to make. And I, I think it's like Visit from the Goon Squad in that way. It's like. No one would ever tell you to put a PowerPoint presentation in the middle. Well, and here's the thing. Like, okay, so what the voice of especially the first essay, and I really liked parts of the interlude, which I want to come back to, I think. Um, The voice of the opening essay, I think, is really important because what it is is essentially like white hot anger uh, about Mm -hmm. the history of violence you know, against Native Americans. And that essay is necessary to catch up every single reader because right. then you're coming into all these characters and they don't have to like subtly 
tell you, you know, what almost everybody in that community already knows. You know what I mean? Like, I like that it's just like, hey, fucking America, this is where this entire community <laughs> is coming from. So they don't right. have to do like the labor in their individual short little stories to like weave this in. I think that's really cool. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's like very unapologetic. And the fact that it's essentially an American history essay while feeling like a rant is a huge success. I mean, that's something that people are really going to remember from this novel. It's like essentially the Childish Gambino video, you know, yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the top of a novel. Yeah. Um, um, but the other... I completely disagree. I think, no, there's no comparison to Childish Gambino. <laughs> because this is... The Childish Gambino is a song, and it's a music video, and right. they're entertaining on those, just on those terms alone. This is, this, is, this is a novel. This is not an essay. And he's, you know, he, inserting the essay to me is a... Look, I mean, I, I just think that it's interesting that we're going in this direction with our, with our entertainment. That's why I brought up yeah. Vice because if you, it's, it's like basically saying you don't have time to uh, reflect and make your own conclusions about what the story is about or what was, you know, what, why I wrote this or why we made this movie. So I'm going to tell you up front and I'm going to make an argument with it. And I think that's a weakening of the novel form or it's a weakening of the film form. You could say it's like the birth of a, a third new kind of thing, but I feel like this book especially is hurt by that because I I I I feel like I when when like you were saying uh, Todd earlier about coincidences when things happened that were very uh, fictional mm -hmm. like or mm -hmm. fi novelistic right like the one that hit me was like he's listening to There There by Radiohead mm. and right then he shows up at an interview and the guy mentions a quote by Gertrude Stein <laughs> that uses the There There okay right so that's a moment where it's like wow okay why isn't the character who's narrating this section I think he's narrating maybe it's a third person why doesn't he comment on the fact that I was listening to a song called There There on the way here yeah and mm -hmm. you brought up a Gertrude Stein quote that I know called so there's this sort of like um, it's like that moment in Repo Man it's, where they says like, we think about a plate of shrimp and then all of a sudden someone walks by with a plate of shrimp but I don't think I would have <laughs> judged it as harshly if I hadn't read that essay to begin with mm. I think I would have been much more sort of in the moment of trying to find connections throughout this novel and and connections between the characters and to find the thematic resonance and I mean to me it's 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 a sign that we're all like uh you know we have so much information and we have so many books and movies and stuff to choose from that now we want our books and movies to sort of declare up front here's what I'm gonna be gonna be about here's what you're gonna get from me here's what to take here's the signal to noise the writer is going into his decline of society period of the yeah, episode but that's, no I'm just talking about the shifts in the art form I, I'm saying what I appreciate I think art's always done that I think art's always done that like you didn't go see a John Wayne movie and and not know that he was going to to kill the savage Indians, you know what I mean? Like well, that's well, what people that's wanted. Not the comparison, no, the, the comparison would be like John Wayne looking at camera and saying, "Howdy, partners! Welcome to my movie. Here's what's going to happen. Where I'm going to go. You know, that's that's a more apt analogy. Like, you, so this is this is something that we're we're. I think well, it's a result of all of us wall. getting too much information. Like we we hmm. we don't have we don't want to take the time to reflect and. It's ultimately condescending to the notion of a reader or the notion of a film viewer, and I think while that's it's it's working and it's what gets people to, you know, read books and watch movies and come away and have discussions. I'm a little concerned that it's diminishing the best parts of those art forms. So, writer, I do I like I ultimately agree with a lot of what you're saying in that I feel like this novel made connections too aggressively. But I don't think that's the fault of the essay because what the essay is there to do is a historic perspective. And then where I felt the writing was weaker and more almost like I need you to get it was within the stories. So like, for example, the essay is called the first section is called Indian Head. It's about the Indian Head pattern, but then becomes about like the history of beheading uh, Native Americans. And then... <laughs> Way later in the book, these two girls are like leaving in the house and they like the Indian head test patterns like on the TV and it spends like more than one sentence on that. And I was like, no, no, like step away, step away from the laptop, like just let him let them run by it and don't say anything about it and let the reader make that connection. But like, I like the fact that the fiction can connect to this, you know, opinionated, raw piece of essayistic work, you know, like if it was. 
didn't have that, I don't think it would feel like the same novel. Like, I can't believe you think you would feel exactly the same if those things weren't in there. Especially, and this is the line in, in the interlude that I wanted to talk about. Um, there's this amazing line in the interview that's like, we're coming up towards the violence. And mm-hmm. it says, I don't have my book in front of me, but it says, like, the bullet, when the bullet hits you, like, it's coming over years miles Mm -hmm. and years not Mm -hmm. within that stadium and like that takes that thought away from any individual character who gets shot and like puts like (laughs) target on the back of every character in the novel and Mm -hmm. every native american who's ever lived and also you know like in a way that's don't you guys feel that way about shootings now like if you were in one you'd be like this is it you know, like it was an mm-hmm. amazing piece of writing divorced from individual stories because it really was like casting that shadow over everything that was to come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It, no, I think it, it's wonderful writing. That's yeah. I mean, the, the essays are phenomenal, but yeah. I mean, and, and to be honest, I really enjoyed this. I just, I just, this is my, I get it. This I get it. <laughs> I, and you know, writer, part of it is it's a holdover as, as the creative nonfiction person in the room who was, you know, got this master's degree in personal essays. Like the internet sucked in personal essays, like a fucking, like, the biggest vacuum cleaner of all time. And now everything's a personal essay and there's, they're everywhere. Right. And we can't like, like my Facebook statuses are personal essays. So like we're just in that voice now as American individuals. Everything has an opinion. Everything's like digested and, you know, processed and, and really, really quickly. The, I mean, this book actually takes the form of sort of a popular form of personal essay writing that I know that I've done a lot of, which is where you have things that seem incongruent and you're mashing them together essentially in a you know in a pastiche and then by the end all of these little things these mosaic pieces come together to form something larger and you have a, a larger voice about something but it's fiction right so it you know it's it's essentially stealing from another form for this for this kind of thing i mean what i really like i mean hmm. like the, there's there's two characters in here that i think are you know, there's edwin and then there's um Odene, is that his name? Or o- um, there's there's the character who's going around doing getting the MFA or getting the grant mm. right. to be able to record Denny. Indian stories. Denny. I feel like either one of those characters would have been a good opportunity. F- uh, and then Edwin is the character who, who reflects on Native um, art th- in the passage I read at the beginning of this episode. And I feel like either one of them would have been an opportunity or somebody else like them would have been an opportunity to insert the essay into the fiction of the novel itself. And I think it would have been a lot more artful. <laughs> but they're both kind of schlubby dumbasses, and I really liked that. That made it happen. Yeah, well, the, happy. Thing, the thing about the thing about Deanie that's funny is uh, to go back to I mean your your overall thesis writer is that the big thing for Deanie, who's trying to get this grant to tell Native American stories, is that the people that are in charge of the grant are like. It seems like you're just going to make it up as you go along. <laughs> I like this. I found that um, a- anytime someone's like making art in a piece of art, I'm immediately suspicious, as we've discussed many times. But he right. is really bad at it, which I enjoyed deeply. Like his yes. questions are terrible. His his style is so awkward. Um, I was very happy about that. He's still letting the content. Very much like a twenty-two-year-old looking for money for something that he. (laughs) I don't know how old he is actually, but in my mind, he's like a college student just being like, "I want to say something important. I just don't know what it is yet." So give me money and I'll figure it out. This is on page two forty. He doesn't even need to show a product at the end of the year for the grant money he's received. This is about the powwow, the committee. It's about documentation for posterity. It might end up in his final production, whatever that might be. He still doesn't know. He's still letting the content direct the vision. I can't tell you how many times yeah. I've been in a meeting somewhere <laughs> where I've been like, well, I'm going to mostly let the content direct the vision. That just means I'm going to make it up as I go along. Did you uh, Did you guys read the acknowledgments at the end of the book? No. No. Because he actually says he, he thanks somebody at the Oakland Cultural Arts Center for funding a storytelling project that never came to fruition, except for in fiction, i.e. in a chapter of this novel. Nice. <laughs> so it's like, clearly he did this. Like, this is exactly what Tommy Orange did. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, 
and you know he he uh, he worked with some great people here. It looks like, um, including folks that we know um, or have talked about before, like Pam Houston, Sherman Alexie, uh, yeah, Claire Vay Watkins, who's a fantastic writer. Um, but you, you want to know the the really interesting thing that has nothing to do with the book, but is but is all about the book in a way, is that it has a blurb from Margaret Atwood, but it comes via Twitter. And I so saw that says, too. What's up with that? It says an astonishing literary debut, Margaret Atwood via Twitter, and so you're like. Oh, so she said this to him on Twitter, and they use that as the blurb, and so now it's this. It's like you, you, you have to acknowledge that you took it from the internet. That's it's a weird. weird thing. Well, no, you hear? Well, no, I, I uh, my wife and I were talking about this because I pointed that out to her, and she said it very well. She's like, "Oh, well, that means it wasn't solicited, right?" Which she is just good. tweeted oh. it because otherwise, if you see an author's quote on an author on a new author's book, it's because they share an agent right. or they share a right. publisher. But because it said via Twitter, it's like, "Oh, Margaret Atwood just spontaneously did this," which is right. more meaningful. I yeah, think I, everyone I should have via something. Via favor. <laughs> Via, Via my agent. Slept with their sister in college or whatever it might be. That's mostly how it, in fact, is these days. Uh, well, I, I think Tommy Orange is going to be one of those writers that we're reading for the rest of yes. our lives. Yeah. I, I, I sure hope so. Agree. You know, I mean, what a what an amazing debut. I mean, the, the end result, of course, is all three of us really love the book, but just a stirring, amazing piece of literature from a first-time author you can't really get more assured than um than they're there says todd goldberg via literary disco yeah he (laughs) went for it (laughs) yeah he went for it he absolutely did all right thanks for listening literary disco is produced and edited by justin alvarez for lit hub radio you can reach out to us directly on twitter at literary disco happy reading everybody